At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. If you ask people in the anti-abortion movement, they'll essentially say what we're doing here is more important than democracy. This matters more than the will of the people. But embracing Comstock says that with a bullet. Hi, and welcome to another off-week emergency edition of Amicus. This is Slate's legal podcast about the law and the courts and the Supreme Court and the rule of law. And it was another spectacularly bad week for the law and the courts and the Supreme Court and the rule of law, at least as measured in units of judicial overreach, Supreme Court law-breaking, and just the general sense that things are pretty much on fire all the time. In a couple minutes, Slate Plus listeners are going to get to listen to Mark Joseph Stern's thoughts on the revelation that Clarence Thomas, benefactor, and vacation wrangler Harlan Crow is also uh, somehow an improbably the landlord of Justice Thomas's mom. Not weird at all. That conversation with Mark can only be accessed by Slate Plus members. There are lots of benefits to Slate Plus membership, like bonus segments from your favorite shows, including the upcoming season of Slow Burn, which just happens to be all about... One, Justice Clarence Thomas. Slate Plus members listen to all Slate's podcasts commercial-free, and they never hit a paywall at Slate.com. You can find out more by going to Slate.com slash Amicus Plus. That's Slate.com slash Amicus Plus. Thank you for supporting the work we do here at the magazine. But first, we take you to the wonderful world of Mifepristone, the abortion medication that is safe, effective, and used, at least as of June 2022, by 5.6 million women in the United States to end a pregnancy, of which the FDA has reported there were 28 deaths from any cause, which means that that's about 0.0005% of people who took the drug. But in an alternate world, it's crazy dangerous and death-causing and something, something, something feelings. Last Friday, it's 7 p.m. after we had taped last week's show, a lone judge went to the something, something, something feelings route and ordered that the FDA pull the drug in all 50 states. On Wednesday night around midnight this week, the Fifth Circuit determined that yet more feelings required reinstating a whole host of regulations on the drug, precluding it from being put in the mails, requiring multiple doctor's visits at offices, and pretty much put a gun to the head of the U.S. Supreme Court to choose between its order and a conflicting order out of Washington state, which the court will almost certainly now have to do. Good thing the court doesn't also have to worry about Justice Thomas's mom's landlord this week, because that would be very awkward. Joining us to discuss all of this is one of our favorite big brains, Mary Ziegler, an expert on the law, history, and politics of reproduction, healthcare, and conservatism in the U.S. from 1945 to the present. I'm just hopping in here to add that late Friday afternoon, after we had already taped our interview with Mary, Justice Alito issued an administrative stay, putting the Fifth Circuit's Mifepristone ruling on hold. 
Now, this has no bearing on the court's ultimate decision here or the merits of the case. It essentially freezes the status quo. The challengers are going to respond on Tuesday. We will likely get an order from the full court sometime next week. And despite all of this news and the fact that we had a few technical challenges with the audio on this interview, I really commend to you Mary Ziegler's incredibly important analysis, not just of the chaos that was this past week, but what is coming down the pike from the anti-abortion movement. Mary is the Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law at the University of California Davis School of Law, and congratulations, has just been named recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship. We spoke to Mary at the dawn of this year about her new book, Roe, The History of a National Obsession. Mary, you were the person I wanted, so thank you for making time. Welcome back. This must be like Super Bowl, Christmas, and uh, the 4th of July for you all rolled into one. Except it's bad, right? It'd be like the Super Bowl, Christmas, and your birthday all rolled into one. It's like the anti-Super Bowl Christmas and your birthday all rolled into It's the worst Super Bowl in the world. Um, Mary, before we do... I'm going to stipulate, A, that we're recording on Friday, and heaven only knows what's going to happen. The show's going to drop on Saturday morning. Before we do the deep dive on history that I really wanted to hear about, I I do think we're going to have to explain the state of play this very second. If you live in the universe as dictated by the Fifth Circuit decision that came down early Thursday morning. So tell us to the best of your ability, uh, with the caveat that things can change, if that order goes forth, what happens? Well, so the Fifth Circuit um, has kind of rolled back the revisions that the FDA made in 2016 and 2021 to access to mifepristone. Um, just, you know, for a brief refresher, mifepristone is very overregulated largely as, as, as a function of a sort of what the FDA at the time was framing as a political compromise that would uh, theoretically placate anti-abortion groups that didn't want the drug to be approved at all. And everyone else, including medical professionals, who argued correctly that the drug was safe and effective. So in the interim in 2016 and 2021, the FDA started loosening some of those restrictions. And now the Fifth Circuit has concluded, at least on an interim basis, that the FDA's decision to do that was arbitrary and capricious. So the state of play now is that the access point for mifepristone has been moved from 10 weeks, which is where it had been, to seven weeks. And that uh, mail order slash telehealth mifepristone is off the table if the Fifth Circuit's order goes into effect. And we have a sort of breadcrumb trail from the Fifth Circuit suggesting that in more ways than one, things could get much worse um, down the road. So that's where we, we will likely go if the Fifth Circuit's order turns out to be the reality um, in, you know, a few days. And I guess the follow-on question is simply, again, recognizing that Judge Kazmarek's order that the Fifth Circuit tweaked a little bit is nationwide. It doesn't matter where you live in the country, presumably, if that order goes into effect. And yet we have this dueling order from Judge Thomas Rice in Washington state, who's this gets a bit tricky because his initial order came down after the Texas order came out of Amarillo, but he didn't stay his order. So he filed a clarification 
after the Fifth Circuit saying, ha ha, I got here first. My order actually goes into effect, meaning that 17 states plus the District of Columbia have to abide by his ruling, which is a loosening of the regulations around MIFI. Yeah, right. The suit brought and it's worth emphasizing um, that this wouldn't be a complete panacea for blue states because some of the big pro-choice states were not part of this suit, like New York um, and California. And But uh, yes, so Judge Rice's order essentially ordered the FDA to preserve the status quo in those states, which would mean, you know, telehealth and up to 10 weeks. And Judge Rice recently, just in response to a request from FDA, said, yes, I mean that my order applies notwithstanding of the Fifth Circuit. So the FDA, you know, has, which is why we know that the Supreme Court is going to get involved because the, the FDA is being told to do completely contradictory things um, in a large swath of the country, which, you know, is obviously not a tenable situation. So just to be super clear on this tiny legal nuance, presumably when the stay is lifted on Judge Kazmarek's order, and that's meant to happen late Friday, what does the FDA do? Well, the FDA, I mean, we know what the FDA most likely will do, and that's to use its discretion in enforcement. And so some people have probably been hearing Democrats saying, you know, the FDA should ignore Judge Kaczmarek's ruling or ignore the Fifth Circuit's ruling. And that's not what I'm saying. Instead, the FDA, like any kind of regular enforcement body or prosecutor, has discretion about how it uses its resources because there's an almost unlimited number of unapproved drugs floating around out there and unapproved uses of approved drugs. And the FDA has but so much time and money And so I think the most likely situation in the short term is that the FDA will announce that it's not going to enforce the old requirements, like the pre-2016 requirements, the same way it did under COVID. Or it may even be that the FDA doesn't do that, and a lot of prescribers and manufacturers just infer that that's what's going to happen. But likely the FDA is going to, I would guess, just leave the status quo in place until at least it gets some kind of clarity from the Supreme Court, because Otherwise, I don't see how you even have a semblance of complying with both orders. And not to be too meta too early, but it does seem yet again that the chaos is the point. Yeah, that at least as of the briefings I've been listening in on for the last couple of days and hours, nobody is quite clear what this means for any prescribing physician. Nobody's quite clear on what it means for states that are stockpiling drugs. Nobody fully understands how this plays out. What does it mean for generic brand? Uh, It's mayhem in terms of knowing what to do next week. And that's kind of the point as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, again, we're seeing lots of sort of not so veiled threats from Judge Kaczmarek and the Fifth Circuit that any workaround that states or prescribers come up with in the meantime, like switching to another regime for medication abortion is under threat down the road too. So I think we have the short-term chaos that's produced by these rulings together with the threat of longer-term chaos. So I think you're also seeing, you know, for example, just California stockpiling misoprostol, which is the other drug used in the two-pill protocol for medication abortion. The implication there, I guess, is that 
if California has to pivot to a misoprostol-only regimen for abortion, which is effective and safe, but less effective than mifepristone and misoprostol together, that they'll have enough of the drug. But we've seen both Judge Kaczmarek and the Fifth Circuit embrace the argument that this 19th century anti-vice law called the Comstock Act actually amounts to a nationwide ban on all abortions, which would mean sooner or later someone in the anti-abortion movement is going to take this argument to judges like Kaczmarek and come for misoprostol too. So we're going to see chaos upon chaos, most likely. We're going to pause now to hear from some of our sponsors. More now with Professor Mary Ziegler. So I want to talk about the Comstock Act, and I really want so very badly to talk about it with you. But the one framing question I think I also wanted to lay down was that in addition to the chaos being the point, it feels a little bit like the Overton window is the point. In other words, between Judge Kaczmarek and the Fifth Circuit, Dobbs starts to look eminently reasonable. It starts to look like a principled compromise, that which, you know, a a year ago we were reading the leaked draft with horror, both at how wrong they were on the law and on the medicine and on the facts. And now we've got a we're about to launch into a conversation (laughs) about a national ban uh, and personhood amendments. And Partly, I think this is under what you just said to me, but partly in addition to the chaos, this really just keeps building a new normal. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think, one, I think this is sort of a fulfillment of what you saw the court say it meant by democracy, which is essentially still ruled by judges. I mean, you can see how long it took the anti-abortion movement to give up on the idea of leaving this to majority rule in the states, right? I mean, here we are with federal judges trying to achieve outcomes that popular politics never could. But there's even, I think, arguably been a pretty significant effort to shift the Overton window between Judge Kaczmarek's ruling and the Fifth Circuit's ruling, because Judge Kaczmarek's ruling, just as a refresher, undermined the FDA's approval of mifepristone in 2000, right? So it would just deem the drug unapproved, period, across the board. And Judge Kaczmarek's ruling had, as Mark Stern really elegantly documented, was just steeped in anti-abortion rhetoric in a way that, as a historian, I've never seen before. And so I think the, the Fifth Circuit's ruling, by virtue of not being that, was striking reporters I spoke to as sort of, oh, isn't this, you know, not extreme? Isn't this sort of more reasonable. (laughs) So I think there's sort of an effort to create a new normal all the time, right? Not just vis-a-vis Dobbs, but even vis-a-vis what we're seeing happening now. Yeah, it's interesting. Both the language, still having the language of unborn children and chemical abortion, all that is in the Fifth Circuit opinion, but because it's not as everywhere, everything all at once as Kaczmarek's was, it suddenly looks like it's chin-stroking, thoughtful, doctrinal work. And then I think you're right by saying we're only setting the clock back to 2016 (laughs) instead of 2000. They don't look like they're revanchists. It's happening very fast. It is, yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that should be reassuring is that what isn't happening very fast is changes to people's underlying attitudes. I think people's attitudes about what's normal for the courts may be changing, but I I have, you know, $50 that says if you took any of this directly to voters, they would say no thank you, just as they would have a few weeks ago. And I think that's part of why we're seeing this happen in the courts, because people in the anti-abortion movement, and they're sometimes quite candid about this, 
think that they can get outcomes in the courts that they can't get anywhere else. This explains, Mary, why Ron DeSantis signs Florida's new six-week ban into law and announces it at 11 o'clock at night in a tweet, right? He he knows that hearts and minds have not changed in the intervening weeks. Um, I do want to talk now about Comstock because I feel like you have been telling us loud and clear for some time the Comstock Act will be the vehicle by which to do the thing the court didn't do in Dobbs. And I wondered, because you've thought about this so deeply, if you just give listeners who probably haven't heard the word Comstock Act until last week a refresher on what it was and where it went and how it has revived like a phoenix uh, to be the specter of doom. Sure, yeah. So uh, the Comstock Act was passed in 1873, and it was the culmination of this work done by a man named Anthony Comstock, who was a self-proclaimed anti-vice crusader. And I think his primary concern at the time was that he thought his counterparts, the other soldiers with whom he fought the Civil War, were just too obsessed with sex. And so he wanted to ban the mailing of almost anything that touched on sex. So starting with what he saw as dirty books, which was an extremely broad category that included pornographic stuff like the Canterbury Tales, which some of you may have read in like high school English, and also included the mailing of contraceptives and abortion drugs or abortion devices. And Comstock was quite vigorous and happy in enforcing this law. He was allowed to carry a weapon. He would boast that he was responsible for the destruction of tons of books and the suicide of numbers of people who were prosecuted under the act. And over time, unsurprisingly, people began to question the legitimacy of the Comstock Act By the early 20th century, courts began interpreting it more narrowly, essentially to say it should only apply to scenarios where the person doing the mailing was intentionally breaking the law rather than trying to achieve some sort of legitimate aim like prescribing a drug for medical purposes. So it began to be kind of archaic and unused even in the early 20th century. In the meantime, Congress, just to score sort of points in the 1950s, actually expanded the language of the Comstock Act so that it would apply not only to drugs like intended for abortion, but also anything adapted for abortion, which if you pause for a minute is extraordinarily broad. But then again, it seemed to kind of go out of use. Congress eventually removed the parts that had to do with birth control Roe v. Wade made it seem as if the Comstock Act was unconstitutional, and the anti-abortion movement for a time didn't want to revive Comstock either because they had been going out of their way after the 70s to prove that they were not an anti-sex, anti-woman movement. They were rather, you know, as they would have put it, a kind of human rights movement that was interested in protecting the unborn child, which meant they didn't want anti-vice laws. So the revival of Comstock is a function of a couple different things. Obviously, the demise of Roe makes it possible to do this. The anti-abortion movement's embrace of lots of other things that sound Comstock-esque, whether those are restrictions on speech about sexual orientation and gender identity, whether it's a more overt opposition to contraception, all of that makes it seem less politically costly for them to embrace the Comstock Act. And of course, I think mostly the Comstock Act reappeared in anti-abortion strategy as a matter of necessity because the movement 
has always wanted more than the reversal of Roe. The movement has always wanted, ideally, a national constitutional ban on abortion, either a constitutional amendment or a U.S. Supreme Court decision. We're not going to get a constitutional amendment for the obvious reasons that no one in the United States wants one. And we're not likely to get a U.S. Supreme Court decision on the idea that abortion is unconstitutional anytime soon either. We know the U.S. Supreme Court actually had an opportunity to take a case on fetal personhood out of Rhode Island and turn it down. And it seems equally unlikely that Congress is going to pass a nationwide ban on abortion from the moment of fertilization when, you know, even House Republicans won't say they're for a 20-week ban. So you began to see anti-abortion lawyers, and I think this particularly the architect of this strategy was a familiar figure, Jonathan Mitchell and Markley Dixon, who were the team behind Texas's SBA, the bounty law, began suggesting that the anti-abortion movement didn't need a new law because they already had the Comstock Act, and that the Comstock Act, it turned out, they argued, actually banned all abortions because they suggested that every single abortion in the United States, surgical or medical, requires something that comes in the mail. Abortion providers don't create their own medical devices or surgical instruments. They don't make their own drugs. They get them from medical device manufacturers and pharmaceutical distributors. So they began seeding local ordinances with mentions of the Comstock Act. They began promoting this argument to state legislators and conservative attorneys general. Um, And now you've seen it spread. You've seen it spread in other conservative organizations Christian right organizations, single-issue anti-abortion organizations. So really, kind of regardless of what happens with the Smith-Pristone suit, we're going to see more lawsuits about this, some of which have already been filed, others of which are going to be filed soon. Now we're going to take a quick break. And we're back with Professor Mary Ziegler. And just to be super clear, the prospect of going through people's mail of going after protected speech, of the door opening to birth control being regulated by Comstock. I think what you're saying is it's it's so interesting. Can't get it done constitutionally, probably can't get it from the courts, going to do it by a statute that is worse on its face than many of those things and going to do that in the face of everybody hating on it because it works. Basically, yeah. I mean, we've seen signs. This isn't surprising, right? Because if you ask people in the anti-abortion movement, they'll essentially say what we're doing here is more important than democracy. Like this matters more than the will of the people. But, you know, embracing Comstock says that with a bullet, right? I mean, the anti-abortion movement has never championed a national statute with language as broad as Comstock. They haven't. I mean, there would be no exceptions for this. There's no life of the pregnant person exception. If you stop and think about what any drug or device adapted for abortion means, like anyone who's been pregnant knows that there are bazillions of drugs, to use the technical term, that are counterindicated for pregnancy, right? So what does Comstock mean for those? What does it mean for drugs like methotrexate? What does it mean for emergency contraception? If someone in a Republican Justice Department interprets emergency contraception as an abortifacient. Like, if this is how courts go with this, we have absolutely no idea how broadly it would apply. Because the language is, to me, I mean, kind of remarkably vague and sweeping. And so it's simply just, you know, the only way they see to get to a nationwide abortion ban. And the fact that everyone would hate it and no one would know what it means 
And that in any kind of normal world, it would be unconstitutional to revive a law, a criminal law like this, that no one has taken seriously in at least half a century. None of that seems to matter, which I mean, you know, leads to the logical conclusion that sooner or later, and I think maybe it will be before we get some kind of clarity from the Supreme Court, maybe it will be after, we're going to have to see a bill demanding repeal of Comstock. Because the the one piece of good news here is that Comstock is not, to your point, a constitutional matter where the Supreme Court has the final word. It's a statute that was passed by Congress. So in theory, a future Congress can make it go away. Mary, before I say goodbye, I do need you to put on your historian and professorial hat and just tell us what is it that Judge Matthew Kaczmarek said about Comstock last week. And I I think it's safe to say the holding of the Fifth Circuit doesn't, it's not rooted in Comstock, but there is some fascinating language in there. I just wondered if you would tell us what they're saying as they try to breathe life back into it and just quickly grade their history for me? In both of these cases, the Alliance Defending Freedom slash the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine isn't so much arguing on the merits that Comstock creates a nationwide ban on all abortions, although they think it should. They're arguing instead and trying to bootstrap Comstock onto their points about FDA authority, essentially arguing that the fact that they think abortion is a federal crime means that any harm to the FDA um, or anyone else really from lack of access to mifepristone lands differently because this criminal law is looming in the background. So for example, the Fifth Circuit is explaining that no one could suffer harm if access to mifepristone is modified or cut off overnight, because mailing mifepristone is a crime anyway. So no one really has a right to do it. The history is unsurprisingly coming from what we've seen from conservative judges lately is radically oversimplified. Um, In some ways, I think it's probably fair to say that Neither Judge Kaczmarek nor the Fifth Circuit is even especially interested in the history. They're mostly focusing on the text. But to the extent, especially Judge Kaczmarek engages with the history, it's radically oversimplified, too. We know that, at least in early discussions, the original purpose of the Comstock Act was, among other things, to actually have an exception for doctors. And that didn't find its way into the final text of the Comstock Act, but there's decent evidence that legislators thought Not that it shouldn't, but that it didn't need to, that it kind of went without saying that you wouldn't prosecute anyone who was doing something that was necessary for their patients. So for Judge Kaczmarek or the Fifth Circuit to present the history as this sort of, you know, it's it's obviously, it's it's a very Dobbs-esque move, right? When you take a kind of messy history and say, well, actually, there's nothing, really nothing to see here. It just means that we can prosecute everyone for everything at all times, which is just not not what the history supports. But it's not surprising that that's what we're hearing them hearing them say, because this is sort of the new way history is being done um, in our courts in ways that bother historians and, you know, obviously bother a lot of the rest of us, too. Yeah, this has been the worst birthday in Super Bowl ever, Mary. Um, just as a court watcher, <laughs> yeah, no, <I> know. <laughs> as a court watcher. Do you want to lay down some odds? You want to tell people to call their bookies? Do you have any? I mean, this just feels like, and I think it's your Overton window point in mine, too, too, too much for the Supreme Court at a moment when everybody uh, is not super fond of them, certainly mistrusting of them. And by the way, Clarence Thomas is um, 
what mom's landlord um, gives him half million dollar trips. But is this too, too much for the Supreme Court if they intervene? Or do you feel as though we're going to wake up in the next couple of weeks and find out that the Fifth Circuit decision in this case, which let's be clear, Mifepristone will not come off the market, but it is going to make it, as you said, much, much harder to obtain, particularly in places where it is not easy to get in to see a doctor and much less have multiple visits and much earlier. What's the Supreme Court going to do? I think it's hard to say. I mean, so this to me, right, was the Alliance Defending Freedom and the anti-abortion movement saying, anyone who has kids or knows people who have kids will have heard at some point, you know, kids will test the boundaries, right? They'll go to the grownups and see if the rules apply anymore, or if you really can have candy for breakfast and like, you know, throw, you know, spaghetti at the wall, right? And this, I think, is people in the anti-abortion movement boundary testing, right? They've gone to the Supreme Court and said, okay, you were willing to give us everything we wanted with Dobbs. So we're going to just keep asking for more. And we're going to ask for more in situations where we probably don't have standing and our claims probably aren't timely. And we don't really have any scientific research to back up what we're saying, or the research we have isn't very good or has already been rejected by the FDA. And we're going to just see if you go for it anyway. And I think the packaging here is designed to be appealing to the Supreme Court because it's rooted both in hostility to abortion and hostility to the administrative state, which we know is appealing to some of the court's conservatives as well. But this is just such a profoundly flawed vehicle for all of those things that it may be hard for, say, you know, Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Barrett to, to use this as the moment to push things further. I mean, I would not be at all surprised if the U.S. Supreme Court goes for the Fifth Circuit's kind of faux compromise. I think that's what the Fifth Circuit was trying to do, to essentially say, okay, we we are reading the room. We don't think the U.S. Supreme Court is going to be ready to go as far as Judge Kaczmarek has, so we're going to give them an off-ramp that really isn't an off-ramp at all, right? A sort of opportunity to say they're being reasonable when they're not. I could very much see that happening. I would be a little bit surprised if they adopted Kaczmarek's position with no modification. But I, I also sort of feel like I've been, you know, in the habit of just being wrong about how quickly it's going to go on a lot of this stuff for a while. I mean, you can kind of Google this and find me saying, you know, ridiculous things about how they wouldn't overrule Roe as quickly as they did, too. So I also don't think you can rule out any outcome, no matter how wild, given that the Overton window is moving this quickly. And I'd also underscore that if the court doesn't go as far as Kaczmarek's ruling, and if the court does present what it's doing as a sensible compromise, you know, one, it's not, but also two, it's not the end point, because we've seen in both Kaczmarek's ruling and the Fifth Circuit's ruling, and we may see from the U.S. Supreme Court, too, that Comstock is out there looming, and anti-abortion lawyers have been preparing for that and already have cases teed up to bring that question more directly to, to SCOTUS in the future. Mary Ziegler is one of our favorite experts on the law, the history, and the politics of reproduction and healthcare and the conservative movement in the United States from 1945 to the present. She is Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law at UC Davis School of Law and has been named just recently the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship. Her most recent book is Roe, The History of a National Obsession. And Mary, I cannot thank you enough. This is exactly the depressing Comstock conversation we didn't know we wanted to have. Thanks. And that is a wrap for this bonus episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so very much for your letters and questions. 
You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of podcasts at Slate and Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We will be back with another episode of Amicus next week. And until then, take good care of yourselves. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.